Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, on Demonic Methodology Part 2, and answers to your questions. In today's podcast, we're going to be touching on really important and interesting topics, and I hope you'll stay with me until the end when I'll make a number of important announcements. The main aim of this podcast is to assist you all in acquiring, in your quest to acquire the Orthodox ethos, which includes or rather presupposes the Orthodox phronema or outlook. These are both the fruit of life in Christ, which is a gift given to those made worthy. Those with a faith as mustard seed, those who didn't let the good uneasiness go to waste. A defining characteristic of orthodoxy as seen in the saints, that which is unique and sets the church apart from the religions of the world, is the discernment of spirits. The saints are the spiritual men, and as Apostle Paul writes, the one who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no man. As St. Eustine Popovich writes, the ability to judge and discern the good from the bad, benevolent spirits from evil spirits, is a gift acquired with spiritual struggle, with spiritual feats, with spiritual labor. It is a charismatic that is of the spirit act by which charismatic spiritual wisdom is obtained, by which alone one can be properly oriented in the human world of spirits and discern correctly if something is of a God or is not. So here it appears that this most distinguishing character of orthodoxy, which sets it apart from the religions, is reserved only for the holy ones, for the perfect. And yet, listen to what the beloved apostle and evangelist John says to the church, to every one of us, to every saint, in every age. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come, is come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the apostle here commands us to test, to try, to examine, and to discern the spirits. That is, persons, teachings, ideas, and thoughts, according to St. Eustine Popovich, that's what spirits includes, teachings, persons, ideas, and thoughts, whether they are of God or of the enemy. 
Of course, this means we have the Spirit of God. It presupposes we have the Spirit of God in order for this to take place. For St. Eustine also writes, The Holy Spirit gives to man the gift of discerning spirits. Why is this commanded of us? Because if you live in the paradigm of moralism, which is most Christianity, what passes for Christianity today, why is this necessary? Be a good person and you've achieved salvation, right? Isn't that what they tell us? But in fact, that is delusional. It's not what the church teaches and not what Christ gave to us. There's much more to it. That is yet to even enter into the spiritual life. That is still with the old law. So why is this commanded of us so important? The apostle is so strided in saying, test, discern the spirits. Because falsehood is manifest everywhere in many false prophets. Uh, that is, those who are ostensibly speak the truth to the world, but actually are deceivers. So what's the criteria to recognize, to recognize these liars, these false prophets? Denial of the coming, and this is very important. The Greek is implying more than just the incarnation of the word and then his three years ministry. No, the coming, the continuous present, the continuous presence of Christ into the world. The denial of this. It's not referring only to the birth, the death, the resurrection, and ascension. It's, con it's referring to the continuous presence, the continuation of his incarnation, the church. And in fact, it's referring more to that, to the church, than it is even to his coming, his first coming, because the apostle is writing to the church from the first to the second coming. The apostle in his apocalypse, in his revelation, it's a book about the life of the church from the first to the second coming. This is what is at the heart of his message to the people of God, that those who deny the presence of God in the church, in his body, these are antichrists. So, in other words, they deny Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They deny that the Son of God is begotten of the Father before all ages, the Arians of every age. They deny the divine humanity, the theanthropic nature of the church. They deny the divine humanity, the theanthropic nature of the Eucharist by supposing it can spread disease. And we see many today, and we will see more as we go forward, who will teach this. They deny the divine energies are present in the divine liturgy, in the temple of God, during the divine liturgy, purifying and sanctifying men and creation. This is also a denial of the presence of God in par excellence, in his church in this world. That's why we run to the church, because there the Holy Spirit descends and changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And this is uh, the Eucharist is the, the heart of the church. It's where the church is manifest. Um, the philosophy of the devil is summed up in denying God in the world, in his presence and his incarnation. This is the whole work of the devil. The philosophy of the Antichrist is this, to take the place of Christ in every way, in every place, and in every person. But what more concretely is the spirit of Antichrist in the end times? One word can be used to describe the spirit of Antichrist, and that is secularism. We use this term in many ways, but if we were to use it in a patristic way, I believe following the teachings of the fathers and especially our elder in our day, Athanasius, uh, 
Mitellineos. Secularism is first and foremost the spirit of Antichrist. It's already in the world, has been. Every spirit which confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh again. But we have to unpack that. Again, I'm stressing that it's not only that Christianity which expressly denies the divinity of our Lord, the various Arianisms, and there are many in the West today that are so-called Christians, but in fact they deny his divinity and are Arians. But every spirit which denies that Jesus Christ is come, has come, and remains in his flesh, the body of Christ the Church. So it is very important for us to all understand that the discernment of the methods of fallen spirits or demonology is not a luxury. It's not an option. It is rather a requirement in the formation of Christology and ecclesiology. As St. John, the great evangelist and beloved of the Lord, teaches, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Insomuch, therefore, that we lack a critical analysis and discernment of the spirits, ideas, thoughts, teachings, and persons, behind the current crisis in the world, that which was brought about the cessation of the synaxis, epitoafto, the gathering in one place of the church, which is the Eucharistic assembly. It's an unprecedented and frightful event in the history of the church. This is not indicative of the patristic mindset. Let me repeat that. Insomuch as we lack critical analysis and discernment of the spirits in this time and place, in this crisis, which has ceased the Eucharist, and for the most part for the faithful, and one could question whether that's even, uh, whether we can even talk about the Eucharistic synaxis without the faithful. This is not indicative of the patristic mindset, but a secularized mindset. Such an approach is consistent with the approach of a secularized Christianity and reminds us of the lamentable gathering of the Second Vatican Council, which the Cretan Council unfortunately imitated in so much as it not only made no reference to heresy, but representatives of heretical confessions were invited and even honored during the sessions. Uh, which is a very, very sad and obvious departure from previous ecumenical councils. In any case, the orthodox way is to be ever watchful, vigilant, mindful of the wiles and machinations of the enemy. This is much of what the spiritual life, the science of sciences, is all about, being trained in the wiles of the enemy to overcome the demonic passions and acquire the angelic virtues. Those initiated into the mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of the Church, which is the portion of all those being saved, are ever cognizant of the mystery of iniquity, which is at work. Let's move on to the same theme, but in our questions and answers. In response to our podcast, Entitled The Coronavirus Narrative and His Demonic Methodology, we received an avalanche of letters, comments, and messages. Nearly all of them were very positive and supportive. One or two were critical, and I'd like to address those for the sake of all of us, because I'm sure that this criticism, although just barely showing up uh, on the radar of all our discussions online, I'm sure it's uh, being heard by many of our listeners and our viewers. So I want to look at the few of the points that are made in the 
criticism of that podcast and our approach to the whole question of this crisis. And I appreciate and I thank those who made those comments and that made those critical assessments because this is the kind of open, sincere dialogue and discussion that we should have in the church. God forbid that in the church the freedom of expression is snuffed out. God forbid. One comment referred to supposed conspiracy theory, which they said I had expressed. I'm not really sure what they're talking about or what they're referring to, but I'm happy he mentioned this because the question I want to ask all of us is, do Orthodox Christians believe in conspiracy theories? Should we? It's a good question, even an important question. Let's look at Holy Scripture and see what references to conspiracies exist there. One is mentioned in the book of Daniel, where certain elite among the Chaldeans sought to kill and conspired against the prophet Daniel. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read how they sought to kill Jesus, who healed on the Sabbath. Quote, then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. In the Gospel of John, we read of a conspiracy to kill Lazarus. And the chief priest, it says, consulted that they might put Lazarus to death. They consulted, they conspired. They conspired. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read how they conspired to kill the Apostle Paul. Quote, when it was day, the Jews made a plot to bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. In the Apostle, in the Apostle Paul's epistles, we read of certain Judaizers who plot against Paul. Quote, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. And the list could go on with dozens of references in Scripture to the evil one and his servants plotting against the holy ones, the holy one and his faithful. For example, in Psalm 83, which is an entire psalm prayer to frustrate those who are conspiring against the people of God, we read, Thine enemies have made a noise. They that hate thee have lifted up the head. Against thy people they have craftily imagined a device, have taken counsel against thy saints. They have said, Come, and let us utterly destroy them out of the nation, and let the name of Israel be remembered no more at all. For they have taken counsel together. With one consent, they have made a confederacy against thee. In church history, there are innumerable examples of demonically inspired conspiracy against Christians, many times leading to the martyrdom of the saints. In our own days, we have the communist atheist yoke in which countless stories of the state conspiring against Christians to destroy the church. And many are now, many of those who were martyred are now included in the great cloud of witnesses because of their witness in the face of this conspiracy. So to the question, do we believe in conspiracy theories? The answer is, we don't believe in them. We have long experience of them. For our life from the first to the second coming of our Lord is one continuous struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, against the conspiracy of demons. The demons are conspiring against us as against Christ, for we are his body. Again, Christ is his church. The church is Christ. The demons are conspiring against every one of us who has his name and are members of his body. Someone may object, yes, but, but this is demonic conspiracy. That's one thing. 
human conspiracy is quite another. To be sure, discerning the Spirit means rejecting many of the theories circulating today from sources that are far from Christ, among those without the grace of the Holy Spirit or the mind of Christ. This goes without saying. This is assumed. We shouldn't even have to discuss this, that discernment is going to be necessary in every theory of explaining the world and what's going on. There are millions of them, philosophies and ideologies and all the rest. So clearly, associating the orthodox patristic response to the demonic conspiracy and our understanding of what's happening spiritually in the world with any of these movements and ideology and philosophies is at very least disingenuous. The misinformation can be so well packaged today and come at you at, to you at such a rate that even the most conservative observer can be persuaded. And no doubt it's among, and among other reasons, this is why one bishop directed his priest to limit their viewing of news on the coronavirus to 15 minutes. It would be a mistake, however, to limit such a skeptical stance only to non-official theories floating around. There is much ground to be, to be suspect of theories and narratives generated by officialdom, including state organs. The organized propaganda of the bloody totalitarian atheist states of the 20th century teach us this much. And it would be very naive to think that in this age of info wars, in which everyone uses the media to its advantage, the media skies are not filled with half-truths and lies spawned by the spirit of Python. Indeed, with the aid of greatly advanced technology, the lies and deception are much more subtle today and therefore much more dangerous. So although the apostles said, we struggle not against flesh and blood, we struggle not against flesh and blood, that does not mean that flesh and blood does not struggle against us. We have no enemies. But does that mean that there are no enemies of the church? We do not war against our brothers made in the image of Christ. But does that mean that a war is not being waged against the church by those we call brothers? Does that mean that human beings are not cooperating with, consciously or unconsciously, the demonic conspiracy? No, unfortunately, 2,000 years of experience of the saints, and especially those in our day, under the atheist yoke, testifies that there are many who align with, may come and cause with, the demonic conspiracy. They seek what the demons traffic in, the passions. And the demons gain rights over them to manipulate them into carrying out the mystery of iniquity, to bring to power their man of iniquity. From the earliest days of the church, the fathers and ecclesiastical writers referred to the devil as the ape or imitator of God, the avolos simia dei in Latin. That means the ape of God. And they referred to the devil as the ape of God because he counterfeits the work of God. He has no originality. He simply imitates. Tertullian declared that Satan imitates the sacraments of God and goes about to apply to the worship of the idols those very things of which the administration of Christ's sacraments consists. Those early church fathers sought to put flesh on the invisible warfare of the demons in order to protect the Christians from their machinations and delusion. Everything 
that is truly of the church is aiming at the salvation of mankind. Every teaching, every advice, every admonition is for the sake of the faithful. Every prophecy is for the sake of their salvation. So following their example, here is one theory by which we may better understand the conspiracy of demons and how the conspiracy of demons incorporates flesh and blood. This is just one view, one attempt, which you can take or leave, but which has its starting point on this under, in this understanding of seeing the enemy as a counterfeit, a plagiarizer, an imitator, and an ape of God. So, the devil observes how Christ and his church works and is structured into a communion of salvation. So we have Christ, we have the 12 apostles, we have the 70, and then we have the bishops, the local churches, and throughout history, we, the church grows and spreads throughout the world through this structure, through this process of, in every age, the saints and their witness being the presence of Christ in the world. We have councils of bishops and those special saints in every age, those who have reached the inner circle of sanctity, the 12 of every age, reaching the highest levels of initiation into the mystery of salvation, the mystery of piety, theosis. These, the servants of God, conspire, quote-unquote, conspire, to save mankind from sin and death. They conspire against the ruler of the passions, the ruler of this world, to extend the overthrowing of the power of the devil to everyone. It's been given to us, it's been given by Christ, but it has to be extended and adopted and, and activated by everyone. And this is what the saints in every age struggle to do. In the church, however, there are many levels of knowledge and action, and there are many who are not zealous, not conscientious, not having activated the grace which was bestowed upon them when they are initiated into the life in Christ through baptism, chrismation, and the Holy Eucharist. They carry the name of Christian, but they do not really understand or enter into the life of Christ. They do not live it fully or at all. This is a picture. The devil observes all this, and he imitates and he is the ape of God. So he has his community, his communion of the lost. He, the enemy, has his disciples, his apostles in every age, his overseers, his councils of evil men that we see in Scripture. Scripture is a type of every age. You see, when we read in Scripture about the conspiracy of the Pharisees, that is not just once. That didn't happen at that time. It happens in every age, and it's a continuous presence and it's warring against the body of Christ, Christ in every age. So we have councils of every man, evil man. We have creators of lodges and societies that are dedicated to the enemy's work, that reject Christ and his grace. Among them, those few in every age, like those few saints in every age that are really initiated like the 12, uh, that are set apart, uh, there are those of the devil in every age who are initiated into the inner mysteries of iniquity, perversion and corruption, unbelief and nihilism. Those who are proud, greedy, angry, and conspire to rule mankind, lead it into spiritual death with them, into slavery of the passions. And yet there are those many who are on the fringes of this mystery of iniquity, of this evil plan, of this... Uh, attempt to ascend uh, the Antichrist into his throne. There are those who are a part of it, but are like the weak, secularized, uh, lapsed Christians 
ignorant of the inner circle, the inner mysteries of the mystery of iniquity. And they're a part of these structures, of these societies, of these lodges, these men who are not fully initiated, do not fully understand the big picture of the end game, are ignorant and passively following, passionate about little except that which is passing. So Satan has his synagogue. The devil is the ape of God. The demons conspire with men in so much as the men acquiesce. So there is something there to consider, how we might interpret and understand the conspiracy of demons and the conspiracy of men with demons. One key aspect of this is that the demons, the devil, give men what they want, the passions. They're behind the passions, using then these impassioned men for his ultimate goal, which is the ascent of Antichrist, which we know about from our own uh, fathers and our Lord. Our commentators respond to all of this and say, even if your personal conspiracy theory about what's going on with this pandemic turns out to be correct, it matters little. What we need to do is simply continue with our repentance and growth in Christ. What happens around us will happen, no matter what. We can't stop the end of time or the coming of the Antichrist and all that precedes his entry on the world stage. Quote, unquote. There's no doubt that any attempt to change the course of the world has taken is futile. The world of the passions is indeed a sinking ship, and it is sinking because it is rotten, fallen, and unrepentant. Our Lord sends us not to keep it afloat, but to save as many of the perishing as the shipwrecked of the shipwrecked as we can and bring them into the ark. As St. Ignatius Branchinov wrote more than 150 years ago, do not attempt to stop the rising tide of apostasy with your weak hand. Avoid it. Protect yourself from it. And that is enough for you. Get to know the spirit of the times. Study it so that you can avoid its influence whenever possible. So he says, do not attempt to stop it, but take measures to protect yourself from it. Avoid its influence by knowing the spirit of the times. I'd like to think that this is precisely what we are attempting to do here. And everything we are doing is for the sake of the salvation of the brethren and of all those who are seeking salvation. For as a priest, is it possible for me to be saved if I neglect uh, the attempt to assist others in protecting themselves? The call for turning entirely inward, ignoring the tide of apostasy and stocking our storehouses of spiritual reserve, reminds me of a certain heterodox group which focuses mostly on prepping for disaster and filling their material storehouses, as if these measures will save them in the day of affliction. Storing food is not a bad, bad idea, of course. It is unwise to rely on supermarkets and the supply chain, something very recent in history. But only if our goods, the food we've stored, the things we've stored, are earmarked for our neighbor as well. What will we do then when starvation sets in? Hoard our food and be indifferent to our neighbor's plight? God forbid, God forbid, we'd, learn, we'd earn a double condemnation if we did this. Likewise, St. Ignatius' call to protect ourselves from the tide of apostasy by getting to know the spirit of the times cannot be interpreted in a pietistic manner. 
continuing in our repentance and growth in Christ, not only is not opposed to being mindful of the spirit of the times and helping protect oneself from other and others, from it, it presupposes it. Let me restate that because this is an important point. Continuing in our repentance and growth in Christ, not only is not opposed to being mindful of the spirit of the times and helping protect oneself and others from it, it presupposes this. Love of Christ and neighbor are inseparable. If we say we love God but not our neighbor, we are liars, says the Apostle John. Love compels me to seek my neighbor's salvation and help protect him from delusion. In my quest to return to Christ, to repent, I am necessarily returning to my neighbor and caring for his salvation. When I live in repentance, I seek to increase the love of Christ. By loving Christ, loving the truth is inseparable from hating falsehood. Walking as children of the light is inseparable from reproving the unfruitful works of darkness. All of the following are inseparable from our repentance and growth in Christ. Having the mind of Christ, loving the truth in the realm of ideas, loving Christ, the truth as a person, and bringing to bear the full weight of the patristic patrimony to shine the light of God on the mystery of iniquity, so that the blessedly uneasy, those who have good uneasiness, and searching souls might find harbor, uh, the harbor of salvation. In orthodoxy, it is always both and. This is an immensely important interpretive key for us. Remember this, both and. He is both God and man. He is both divine and human. He is both, there is both the dogma and the ethos. He is both the way and the truth. We live both the mystery and we preach the gospel, the kirigma. We both return, that's our repentance, and are being sent. We become apostles. We both cultivate the love of God, which is communion, and the love of our neighbor, which is communion with our neighbor. These things are inseparable. This is a key, key point in this whole discussion. Another beloved brother and critic has complained that we were focusing only on one side of the crisis, and it is the wrong side. He says that we need to be focusing almost exclusively on our own repentance and come to self-knowledge, for it is our indifference, our lack of the fear of God, our lack of fulfilling the presuppositions of the mysteries and approaching them impiously that has brought about the crisis. And I agree. In fact, I've actually said as much in previous podcasts. It seems to me that it is he and others who seem to be implying that we must only do one of them. That is, only focus on ourselves and not focus on the machinations of the enemy aimed against us. But again, it is always both and. We need to look at both. It's a temptation to become pietistic and only say, we are sinful, we are awful, we must repent. That's first, absolutely. But that's only half, or maybe a little more than half of the picture. The rest of the picture is that there's a war on and yes, we have given rights to the enemy through our sinfulness. But now, let us not continue in delusion, but let us repent. And part of that repentance is confessing Christ and becoming bold post-Pentecost preachers of him. It includes obeying God rather than men. 
It means both keeping his commandments to eat his body and drink his blood and take reasonable measures for the health of our brother out of love for Christ. Have you seen your brother? It says in the Yerodikon. You have seen your Christ. In short, the path of repentance passes through the opening of the churches. Repentance means a change of orientation. And with that, there's a change of perspective. And we look at things with an enlightened perspective. Our critics say we must look exclusively to correcting our worldly way of life. Absolutely, this is the base, the basic problem always. Yet, be careful. For part of that worldliness is assuming a compliant stance to the closing of our churches. If we have a stance which is oriented correctly, that is, we're in repentance, it will include keeping the churches open and calling out the lies in the realm of ideas and confessing Christ before the unbelievers. The two are not opposed, but rather they are inseparable. Return and communion, repentance and trust and faith, the preaching of repentance and the confession of the faith, humility and the fear of God it is always both and. We should not focus only on one to the detriment of the other. Now, there are many more questions that have been sent, not many critical, but I've already gone too long in this podcast. I need to address some important announcements for all of you who are uh, listeners and now subscribers on YouTube. First of all, I want to thank all the new subscribers. We've gone, by God's grace, from 2,500 subscribers a few weeks ago to 6,000 today. And that's a testimony to your thirst and love for Christ, that you're seeking out the Holy Fathers and the patristic answer. And God willing, by your prayers, you'll find them here on this channel. That's my goal in any case. So thank you. Thank you. If you're a regular viewer of this podcast, but have not subscribed or not uh, hit the subscription button and the bell on YouTube or through one of the platforms you're listening to this on one of the podcast platforms, I encourage you to do that for several reasons. First of all, it allows you to have access without much thinking about it. It'll come to you in uh, some kind of notification. But it also uh, helps us reach more people. The larger the subscription base, the more likely that this video and others will reach more people. And it also helps us to not focus on distribution and promotion of the podcast, but we can focus on producing the podcast. So I encourage all of those who have not hit the bell and subscribe to do that for those reasons. I want you to also go to the community tab on if you're watching this on YouTube and check out an announcement that we made uh, about a potential summer seminar that I'm thinking of doing. And this would be a course, an eight-week course, once a week, uh, two to three hours of lecture, question and answer through something like Zoom. And the topic would be the, uh, I'm giving it the title, Orthodox Survival Course. And I'm taking this title from Father Seraphim Rose's Orthodox Survival Course that he gave in the late 70s just a few years before his repose. That was the culmination of years of reflection and research that he had done uh, in helping the, his listeners then understand the present age, this age of apostasy and the last times that we're living in through a um, historical and theological examination of the last thousand years of Western 
Christian history. Now, I'm not going to focus as much as Father Seraphim did on the historical aspect. I'm going to be using that text for sure as one of a basic text in the course, but I'm going to add much more to that uh, from other sources that uh, have since come uh, in the saints that have lived since 1970s. So that's a potential course that could be offered to all of you. And I want to see how many people are interested. So if you've not been over there, you've not seen that announcement, go to the community tab on YouTube, check it out and hit one of the answers there that you do it or you're interested in it, but you do it later or you're not interested in it, whatever it is. So we can get a real sense of what uh, interest there is for such a course. I want to finally say that there's going to be a short break over the next week or two uh, because we have some very exciting developments here, some, some uh, uh, projects we're working on. And God willing, within a few weeks, we'll have uh, two important interviews that I'm going to be doing with ecclesiastical men here in Greece uh, that I um, have a good relationship with and uh, revere. Uh, and I'm going to be doing right here in this uh, office, I'm going to do an interview with uh, with them, and then we're going to trans translate that, and we're going to post it as an audio and as a video file for all of you. And this is going to be uh, continuing in the vein of the Orthodox ethos, but also the contemporary situation. So this is very exciting. But in order for me to do that, I'm going to have to take a break. For f uh, There'll be less podcasts, in any case, coming out over the next week to two weeks. So I ask your prayers as we uh, work on that and prepare that for the sake of you and all those who are seeking salvation in this day and age. Thank you for being here. And I look forward to seeing you again and, and speaking to you again soon in a further podcast. Christ is Oh,